Hello and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics with yours truly, the Very Lutheran Project Director. Today we are going to be jumping into the Augsburg Confession, Article 15, and we're going to go up to the end of Article 17 with an emphasis on Christian freedom. The Catacomb Synod is a very, very loosely confederated network of house churches. Why is that the case? In part because it protects against the current forms of Lutheranism that I believe have led to many of these groups going astray, but also because we have forgotten much of what Christian freedom is. St. Paul says in Galatians 5, 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we understand that this does not mean we are antinomians. It does not mean that sin is permitted. That's Romans chapter 6 tells us freedom is not the same as license. We are not permitted to violate the Ten Commandments just because we have freedom in Christ. But in our modern era, churches don't have a theology of Christian freedom. If you ask them what it means that you are free in Christ, you will invariably hear things like, I am free from damnation, or I am free from the sentence of the law which may be true, and praise God for it, but they forget that in context, St. Paul says we are free, therefore don't submit to circumcision. The Christian has freedom in many of his choices that those who were born under the law in the Old Testament did not have. To submit to the law once more, in terms of the Mosaic law, that is, would be to submit to a yoke of slavery where you have hardly any real decisions to make. However, the Augsburg Confession not only underscores and italicizes Christian freedom such that the Catacomb Synod can only be described as a synod, yes, but also one that is consistent with free Lutheranism. Lutheranism that is congregational in nature, with a near hyper-emphasis on it. The individual congregation is the right form of the kingdom of God here on earth, and we mean that. So we turn to the Augsburg Confession, Article 15, and we read this. With regard to church usages that have been established by men, it is taught among us that those usages are to be observed which may be observed without sin, and which contribute to peace and good order in the church, among them being certain holy days, festivals, and the like. Yet we accompany these observances with instruction so that consciences may not be burdened by the notion that such things are necessary for salvation. Moreover, it is taught that all ordinances and traditions instituted by men for the purpose of propitiating God and earning grace are contrary to the gospel and the teaching about faith in Christ. 
Accordingly, monastic vows and other traditions concerning distinction of foods, days, etc., by which it is intended to earn grace and make satisfaction for sin, are useless and contrary to the gospel. How do you determine if something is uh, conducive to good order and peace in the church? Well, that's the church's decision. And not some episcopacy, not some leadership from on high. To the contrary, it must be the individual congregation under the guidance of a minister, a deacon, a lay leader, or a pastor. Church usages are not to be imposed upon the individual congregation by a higher ministerial authority. Why? Because higher ministerial authorities, your bishops, archbishops, etc., district presidents, what have you, they are not on the ground. They do not know what is conducive for peace and good order in that church. If you have a congregation full of older individuals who are used to higher liturgy, they want the smells and bells, they want a pretty altar to be there wherever you are worshiping, it is for good order that you have traditional services, that you observe the church calendar more strictly. However, if you have a congregation of newer Lutherans uh, converts that have no idea what a te deum is, maybe it's a good idea to have simpler liturgy. Or heaven forbid, you have a small home congregation of people who insist on having contemporary worship. That's fine. If it is for good order and peace in the church, it is good to accommodate believers and meet them where they are at. That is part of having Christian freedom, both in the individual sense and in the corporate sense. We have a problem, though, in Lutheranism where this has been completely and totally ignored. We have chancel prancers everywhere who will at first tell you that anything other than a high liturgy is an abomination before God. It is wickedness and evil. Then you point Article 15 out to them and say, Wow, you're, uh, you're sounding pretty Roman Catholic there. It's very papist of you to say that people are going to go to hell if they don't observe your liturgy. At which point they play a little hat trick. They engage in a little bit of Lutheran taquilla and say, Oh, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that if only they understood the benefits of higher liturgy, if they understood the rites and ceremonies that we have, they would want that. And so a good congregation is going to be adjusting to that over time. Higher and higher liturgy until they're where I want them to be. For these types of people, quote-unquote Christian freedom is freedom for these dumb rubes in the laity to do as I tell them to do so church looks the way I want it to look. Here at the Catacomb Synod, we deny and condemn that attitude, that viewpoint, because Christian freedom is a real thing. 
You are free from the shackles of the law. Absolutely. You are free to finally start obeying our Lord in his commandments. Yes, but you are also free from a restrictive life, and you are free to make real choices that you deem best for good order and peace in the church, including also in people's personal lives. Chances are, if it is not pornographic or obscene, you are not sinning if you get a tattoo. You are not sinning if you smoke a cigarette. You are not sinning if you eat a slice of bacon. You are free from much of these restrictions of the law. And we celebrate that here in the Catacomb Synod. We celebrate that individual congregations, like individual Christians, have the ability to make decisions for their good, for peace and good order. Provided, of course, it is without sin. So we do not ordain women. We do not allow for sexual sin, etc. We still hold to the commands of our Lord Christ and the apostles. We hold to the Ten Commandments. However, if somebody comes up to us and tries to logic their way into saying that something is a sin, which scripture does not condemn as sin, we are likely to deny it and say, that's great that you feel that way, that's according to your conscience, but we have Christian freedom. St. Paul does say we must not burden other people's consciences, the weaker brother in the book of Romans. However, even matters like that are up for the church and individual Christians to decide, not something passed down from on high. Now that said, yes, in context, 1521-1522, the Augsburg Confession is addressing things like holy days, festivals, and monastic vows, which were taught as a way of reaching God, of earning salvation, and making uh, propitiation for one's sins. That is wickedness. It is vile to say that when Christ alone is our Savior. We understand that, yes, that is the historical context. But historical context never dies. There is always a shift. There is always a return of something like that. And Lutherans for too long have presumed that we are just immune to the mistakes of Rome because we're not Papists. And so we end up burdening consciences and souls with our own we've always done it this way idea of tradition with our idolatry of the liturgy, our own version of holding the Mass to be bigger than it truly is, etc. and so forth. Again, the Catacomb Synod is a free Lutheran Synod. We will not be engaging in these same mistakes. And the confederated network design that we have reinforces that to make sure that I have no ability to enforce my personal preferences on people as the director of the very Lutheran project and the leader of the Catacomb Synod. May we hold to freedom in Christ. Now moving along, we get to Article 16 on civil government, which says... It is taught among us that all government in the world and all established rule and laws were instituted and ordained by God for the sake of good order, 
and that Christians may without sin occupy civil offices or serve as princes and judges, render decisions, and pass sentence according to imperial and other existing laws, punish evildoers with the sword, engage in just wars, serve as soldiers, buy and sell, take required oaths, possess property, be married, etc. Condemned here are the Anabaptists who teach that none of the things indicated above is Christian. Also condemned are those who teach that Christian perfection requires the forsaking of house and home, wife and child, and the renunciation of such activities as are mentioned above. Actually, true perfection consists alone of proper fear of God and real faith in God, for the gospel does not teach an outward and temporal, but an inward and eternal mode of existence and righteousness of the heart. The gospel does not overthrow civil authority, the state and marriage, but requires that all these be kept as true orders of God, and that everyone, each according to his own calling, manifest Christian love and genuine good works in his station of life. Accordingly, Christians are obliged to be subject to civil authority and obey its commands and laws in all that can be done without sin. But when commands of the civil authority cannot be obeyed without sin, we must obey God rather than men. Now, we are not so foolish as to pretend that we do not live in a hyper-politicized society. All who are in the Catacomb Synod are liable to have their own political opinions. That is fine. We have freedom in Christ to have political opinions and beliefs. It is not such that Christianity demands that you be a socialist or a republican or a syndicalist or whatever. But whatever your politics are, the Christian position is Christ modifying your politics, not the other way around. Our faith informs our conduct as good citizens of whatever country we live in, submitting to civic authority, whether it is good or evil. We entrust our Lord to bless those who truly do fulfill their office of punishing wickedness and rewarding righteousness, and we trust in our Lord to deliver us from those sinful and wicked rulers who do not fulfill their office as appointed. That does not prevent us from seeking our political positions in their fulfillment. A man wants lowered taxes in his city for the sake of his property, for the sake of saving more money for his children. He is a conservative. Fine. That is perfectly fine for him to seek that, while another individual in the same congregation may be more of a socialist type who wishes for higher taxes to redistribute the wealth to those in need. While these are inevitably going to come into conflict, we do urge people in congregations to show Christian love to one another and to have the understanding that they are free Lutherans in a free Lutheran synod. They have the right to disagree on these matters, provided that their politics conform to the Christian faith and not the other way around. 
our deacons have been instructed to seek peace and good order in the congregations regardless of what people's politics are and to advise and exhort people that if they cannot discuss these things without conflict they leave their politics at the door of the church whether that's at home a park or in a brick and mortar church furthermore they are told to urge the congregants to let their politics submit to Christ. Every political worldview out there has something in it which can lead somebody astray. Libertarians fall into the trap of not loving their neighbors or even advocating for an immoral society or an amoral state. While socialists and Marxists have a nasty habit of believing that there is no such thing as property rights, we ignore the seventh commandment and pretend that God never said it. These must be modified to conform to what scripture says. Without burdening somebody so as to force them to violate their conscience and tell them to abandon their deeply held beliefs. Far be it from us to tell a conservative to stop desiring to conserve things because of the quote-unquote gospel. We do not hold to gospel reductionism. We believe that Christians still live in the world and the gospel has not obliterated material differences leading to these political differences. Thus we believe that Article 15 and Article 16 are tied together now in the 21st century because good order and peace in the church rely both now on church usages and being on the same page politically, at least insofar as we believe in what the scripture says about politics and we are good citizens wherever we are. Of course, in the 16th century, this was not the case, as politics was more or less a settled matter by the monarchies that ruled in Central Europe. But today, in the 21st century, the circumstances dictate that these two articles are now closer together than they once were. Peace and good order in the church. Let us emphasize it. Moving along now to our last article of the day is Article 17, The Return of Christ to Judgment. It is also taught among us that our Lord Jesus Christ will return on the last day for judgment and will raise up all the dead to give eternal life and everlasting joy to believers and the elect, but to condemn ungodly men and the devil to hell and eternal punishment. Rejected, therefore, are the Anabaptists who teach that the devil and condemned men will not suffer eternal pain and torment. Rejected, too, are certain Jewish opinions which are even now making an appearance and which teach that before the resurrection of the dead, saints and godly men will possess a worldly kingdom and annihilate all the godless. So, we agree with historic Lutheranism that we are amillennialists. When Christ returns, that is it. We enter into the eternal state. After that, there will be the judgment of the dead and the living, and there will be our eternal fate from there, whether that is the blessed resurrection unto life or the second death, that is eternal torment in the fires of hell. However, while we are flatly amillennialists, this is a settled matter in accordance with Scripture, 
We also teach here for the Catacomb Synod that the premillennial and postmillennial positions are essentially the same because they seek a worldly, earthly kingdom, whether they believe that will be from Christ as a world monarch coming back to reign physically for a thousand years, or Christ spiritually ruling as the church takes over the world and institutes theocracy. Both of these seek a worldly rule, which trusts ultimately in the strength of men, in the strength of violence, and in the strength of human power for salvation, rather than trusting in Christ himself for our salvation. We also observe that the teachers of premillennialism and postmillennialism almost universally deny Christian freedom on account of this. They believe, almost invariably, down to an individual, that, oh yes, this wonderful millennium will look something like how I want society to look. It will look exactly like my politics. It will look exactly like the fulfillment and soothing of all of my seething, angry resentment. So that we do not make the same mistakes as the Qumran community and as a hedge against letting our politics and our personal opinions modify the witness of Holy Scripture, we maintain amillennialism for the sake of the body and because, frankly, that's just what Scripture teaches. And this connects in with our confessional pietist position on the confessional side of things. We have observed over the centuries that Lutheranism perseveres. It continues, and its confessions have most definitely contributed to its continuance. Obviously, as a confessional Lutheran, I believe that God has rewarded and blessed those who are faithful to Holy Scripture. And the Augsburg Confession and the other Lutheran confessions, being true interpretations of the word, have been conducive to receiving that blessing. However, even from an observational, uh, more wisdom-oriented way of looking at things, have you noticed that there are almost no Anabaptists? Not speaking about the Baptists, I'm speaking about the Mennonites. I'm speaking about uh, the Zwickau prophets and those who engaged in violent rebellion against the state, the Munster evil, those who decided that they were of a different kingdom entirely and it was incumbent upon them to either establish a new kingdom by force or to not participate in the kingdoms of this world, even though there was a need to do so. There are hardly any Anabaptists left. They made themselves so obnoxious in their uh, rebellion against what Scripture teaches that they ended up being punished by the state and by various churches. They ended up not agreeing with one another. They ended up fighting and backbiting and scratching until many of them simply packed up and left for America. So there are very few Anabaptists left while there are many Lutherans, on account of Lutherans taking the wiser position in following what Scripture says plainly, rather than allowing things like uh, different church usages, chiliasm, or political frenzies destroy us from within. 
Thus we hold tightly to the confessions and recognize their use and benefit for us as a church body. But next week, as we discuss freedom of the will, we will be getting more into the pietist side of things and how our good friend Dr. Spanner uh, helps us in understanding this aspect of the Augsburg Confession. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.